0: It was wintertime in 1992 in the peaceful town of Dayton, Ohio. Dayton was heavily decorated in twinkling lights as everyone anxiously awaited Christmas Day to arrive. No one anticipated that the excitement they would receive that year would be that of pure terror. A group consisting of teenagers and young adults who named themselves the Downtown Posse were bored one night. Searching for something to do and easy cash, the group began a frightening murder spree. 19-year-old Marvelous Keene was reportedly the leader and was accompanied by his 16-year-old girlfriend, Laura Taylor, 17-year-old Demarcus Smith, and his girlfriend, 20-year-old Heather Matthews. Dayton, Ohio would experience this horrifying spree starting on Christmas Eve and lasting until December 26th. For three days, the group of young people embarked on a shooting rampage, which left six dead and two injured. The incident has been dubbed Never Forgotten as it left a permanent mark on the town in the Christmas season. The Dayton Christmas killings are considered the worst crime spree the city has ever experienced as the group of youth's only motive was just for the thrill. Welcome to another episode of Crimson Sin with Tamsin Lee. I am your host, Tamsin Lee. Full show notes and sources can be found at crimsonsintamsinlee.podbean.com and in the description. Episode transcripts, show updates, and more can be found at buymeacoffee.com slash Lee. If you have been following my posts on there, you would have seen that I have made my exciting announcement. I have opened a little online shop where you can not only purchase Crimson Sin with Tamsin Lee merchandise, but you can also find original designs from me featured on shirts, mugs, and more. I am currently working on new designs that will add a little happiness to everyone's day, so you should definitely check it out. The link to my shop will be in the description. And I am aware that my designs are completely unrelated to my podcast, and what is discussed here, but you know, sometimes you need that little cutesiness in your life to get by. (laughs) I'm currently working on some designs for Valentine's Day that's coming up. If you know someone who loves cute teddy bears and kitty cats, you should definitely look at my shop. You will find a lot of pretty neat stuff. (laughs) Also, don't forget to like, comment, and subscribe or follow for more stories from me, Tamsin Lee. Showing your support really helps me out and it is really appreciated. I try to respond to all of my comments that I receive. I like to interact with my followers and my listeners, so please feel free to leave me comments. Today's case brings us to Dayton, Ohio in 1992. A group consisting of four individuals went on a murder spree, starting on December 23rd and lasting until December 26th. During their spree, they murdered six people and left two injured in the bloodiest murder spree Dayton has ever experienced. The self-proclaimed group, called the Downtown Posse, consisted of nine youths who were known to hang out at Courthouse Square, panhandling. The youths would often crash and do drugs at an apartment public housing complex owned by an older man named Bill, who ran a crack cocaine den. The people of the group consisted of individuals who were from different races and different backgrounds, but all shared a rebellious nature. They were at odds with their parents, and also craved the next thrill. By December 23, 1992, 16-year-old Laura Taylor was expelled from Meadowdale High School just four months before and hadn't seen her parents in nearly three weeks. A five-foot-tall girl with a sweet, almost childlike face. Marvelous Keen was once a choir boy and a regular churchgoer who had just returned to Dayton after spending 18 months in Los Angeles with his father. His mother had hoped while staying with his father he would overcome his rage at the murder of his brother who was fatally shot during a botched robbery attempt the previous year. Keen was stocky and flashy, with a box haircut and a fondness for jewelry. Someone who could be considered intimidating to meet, just from his height, but he was generally polite, addressing those in authority with yes sir and no sir, which just because someone does bad things does not mean that they don't know how to be polite or show respect to someone. In my research, it had said that it was, he was surprisingly polite, and I just, I don't understand why it was so surprising. <laughs> I mean, yeah, you wouldn't expect it, but just because he did bad things doesn't mean he doesn't know how to be polite, you know? <laughs> so Marvelous and his girlfriend Laura had been together for two weeks when they used all of their money for a night at a hotel on December 23rd. This is when Laura came up with an idea, claiming she knew a man who had a job at General Motors, he drove a nice car, and always had money on him, especially when it came to sexual favors. When he let her in his home, they would rob him. Keane agreed to go along with the plan. He proceeded to pack up a few of his things, which included two cheap 25 caliber automatic handguns. It was very cold that night in Dayton, Ohio, in the low 20s, as the couple left the hotel. As neither of them owned a car, they walked over a mile to Bill's apartment, where Laura called the man who lived on Prescott Avenue and promised him an orgy. This is when Laura and Keane recruited Heather Matthews. A 20-year-old who was just released from prison that October and was becoming reacquainted with crack cocaine. Keane, Laura, and Heather walked three miles to 34-year-old Joseph W. Wilkerson's home. While there, the events that unfolded were quite different than what Joseph was expecting. Laura and Heather tied Joseph to the headboard of his bed using electrical cords, while Keen ransacked the house, finding a 32-caliber derringer in the garage. Keen used it to shoot Joseph in the chest. Heather would later state that Laura used the 25-caliber gun to shoot Wilkerson a second time in the head. After murdering Joseph, the three remained in his house, using it as a base of operations and partying. They would also help themselves to Joseph's vehicle, a red Buick, using it to drive around and continue their murdering spree. The gang also took a portable color television and microwave from Joseph's house. The following morning, Heather's boyfriend, 17-year-old Demarcus Smith, who was wanted by police for parole violations, would join in on the spree. At roughly 7 a.m. on Christmas Eve, Keane, Laura, and Heather drove Joseph's car back to Bill's, unloaded the trunk, and slept at the apartment until noon. When they got up, they proceeded with their day as usual, spending the afternoon at Courthouse Square and the arcade. Later that evening, Laura wanted to rob someone else, so Keen and Smith drove her to Main Street, where she lured a person and got into his car. They tailed the person and Laura in the stolen Buick. When the car stopped, Smith got out of the vehicle and shot out the person's back window with Laura still in the vehicle. The person took off toward Main Street with Laura still in the car and into the parking lot of Dayton Police Headquarters. Initially, Keen and Smith followed the person but soon stopped chasing them, probably knowing where they were headed, they decided to stop. Instead, the two would drive around for a while. Smith decided he would go look for Laura, so Keen dropped him off on Main Street with Smith still carrying his gun. So Keene dropped Demarcus off on Main Street to go find Laura while still carrying the gun. Later that evening, they would all return to Bill's apartment. But not long after, the three of them would leave in the Buick again to search for their next victim. Unfortunately, they would find her. Near a neighborhood market in West Dayton, a woman using the payphone would become the group's next victim. Danita Golette was an 18-year-old mother who had a 2-year-old daughter at home and she was a senior at Patterson Cooperative High School. Danita was using the payphone when the gang approached her. They ordered her to give them her belongings and even though she complied with all of their demands, they still shot her five times with no remorse. She survived the initial shooting but was pronounced dead on the way to the hospital. From her body, the group took her shoes, her coat, her backpack, and 50 cents. Reading this made me so angry. Knowing that Danita initially survived the attack and died because three people just found it so thrilling to murder innocent people is just insane. She was only 18 years old, and had a baby at home. They took so much away from Danita and her daughter for a pair of shoes and 50 cents. It, it's it's disgusting. Dispatchers contacted the Dayton Homicide Squad at roughly 10:15 that night. Detectives Doyle Burke, Wade, and Lawson were all enjoying Christmas dinner with family and Sergeant Grossnickel was at evening service when they all received the call of the brutal killing. When they arrived at the scene, they were told that 18-year-old Danita Collette was attacked while using the payphone and had been sent to Grandview Hospital, where she was pronounced dead soon after arrival. Blood in nine shell casings lay on the pavement near the phone booth. Five bullets pierced the victim's body. It appeared to investigators that the only things missing from her body at that point in time were her shoes and jacket. The homicide squad continued questioning witnesses and collecting evidence from the scene. Witnesses stated that they saw two black males running from the scene into a long, dark red car. They collected empty aluminum casings from 9 25 caliber blazer bullets. Blazer ammunition was common as it was cheap, but most people used these bullets for target practice, not for killing. So I guess this kind of piqued the investigators interest that these bullets were used in killing someone instead of for target practice like they were more commonly used. Detective Lawson was named the lead investigator for the case. Unbeknownst to authorities at the time, golette was the gang's second victim. The group had fled to Bill's apartment after murdering Danita golette The gang was in full party mode while Bill was away. In the apartment was 16-year-old Wendy Cutrill, her 18-year-old boyfriend Marvin Washington, and Heather Matthews. While everyone was partying, Heather was reportedly recovering from a fight with her ex-boyfriend, 28-year-old Jeffrey Wright, who had just stormed out of the apartment. Suddenly, Keane, Laura, and Smith burst into the room. Laura excitedly told Heather, we shot her, we shot her as she held Danita's bag and clothing. Laura and Smith dug through the bag and clothing to find 50 cents. Smith reportedly bragged, Yeah, we laid her out, before trying on Danita's Fila gym shoes. When he found out they fit, he kept them on. He also still carried the 25-caliber firearm that Keen had given him, while Laura carried the 32-caliber Derringer, which was stolen from Joseph's home. A half hour before midnight, Jeffrey Wright returned to the apartment looking for Heather. It was reported that he dragged her by the hair to a bedroom. DeMarcus Smith was said to have followed and the two started to fight over Heather. This would lead to Smith chasing Wright out of the apartment and firing his gun at him as he raced across the open field. Wright reportedly hit the ground and tried to play dead as Smith walked up to him, pulling the trigger on the gun until it emptied. After being shot four times in the legs, Wright managed to get up and run to a neighbor's house who helped him to the 5th District Police Station. He would receive treatment and survive the attack. However, the incident appeared to have gotten Taylor's wheels turning as she was soon thinking of one of her former boyfriends. After all, Richmond Maddox had money and a car. On Christmas Day, many were enjoying their festivities. The Dayton Homicide Squad spent all night on the Donita Golette case and were enjoying Christmas evening with their families. That is until dispatchers called at 8.50 p.m. Arriving at the scene, they discovered a blue Chevy Caprice smashed into a tree in front of a house. The driver was a young black male who was slumped across the floor of the front seat. Nothing appeared suspicious about the incident to the officers on the scene until doctors at the Good Samaritan Hospital reported finding a thirty-two caliber bullet in the skull of the driver. The driver was 19 year old Richmond Maddox. Investigators talked to neighbors and other possible witnesses. One neighbor claimed that after hearing the crash, he came outside to see two black males standing next to the demolished car. He stated that he heard the taller male tell the other, he wrecked your car. The neighbor then shouted at them that he called the police. Then the two calmly walked towards Salem Avenue. The investigators thought this was just one more bizarre Christmas murder. There was nothing linking this one to Danita's case. After all, Danita's murder was brutal with multiple shots and 25 caliber ammunition used. Richmond Maddox was killed with a single 32 caliber. On Christmas Day, Laura Taylor lured Richmond Maddox from his parents' house to go for a ride and to spend the night at a hotel. Laura and Maddox left in Maddox's car with Keen, Smith, and Heather tailing them. After a while, Maddox became suspicious that the vehicle was following them. When he stated his concerns, Laura told him that they were her cousins making sure she made it to the hotel. Maddox briefly stops on Benton Avenue before gassing it. This is when Laura takes out the derringer and places it to his temple and pulls the trigger. She then quickly opened the passenger door and jumped out of the vehicle before it smashed into a tree. Laura injured her leg during the jump but still managed to run to Salem Avenue. This is when Keen and Smith were seen looking at the vehicle by the neighbor as Heather drove to find Laura who was waiting for her friend to pick her up in a parking lot. The gang decided to change their hideout after the late Christmas Eve shooting of Jeffrey Wright to elude police. Now the four youths gathered at the home of Sandra Pinson, who was the mother of another gang member and the aunt to one of the other gang members, Nick Woodson. Here they would discuss ways to get quick cash before taking off in two cars. The four would drive to a bank on Salem Avenue to rob an unsuspecting victim using the ATM. However, they would wait for a long time. When someone finally did pull up to the ATM, the individual became suspicious of the people in the parking lot and drove away without taking any money. Lucky for them, their gut instincts kicked in, right? After this failed attempt at quick cash, the four moved on, pulling into a BP station where they spotted a young woman pumping air into her tires. Keen and Smith burst out of the vehicle with Keen pulling out his firearm as Smith said, Shooter. But the woman ran without any shots being fired. Keen and Smith then got into her car a black Dodge Shadow and took off, but they still had no cash. They decided that they should instead rob a store. Laura Taylor would be the one to choose which place they would rob. The shortstop Mini Mart was a little store on West 5th Street with only two employees. The location was ripe for the picking as it was isolated. Heather then drove the gang there. Laura walked in first to scope the place out. If she didn't come out after several minutes, it meant the coast was clear for them to proceed with their plan. While in the store, Laura bought chewing gum, then walked to the back of the store to grab a drink. She asked how much it was, to which the store clerk, Sarah Abraham, answered, 35 cents. Laura was a nickel short, so she went up to 71-year-old Jimmy Thompson, asking if she could have a nickel. Jimmy Thompson was a regular at the store who would sometimes run errands for Abraham and her assistant, Jones Pettis, and he gladly gave her a nickel. That's when Keen and Smith entered the store. The Homicide Squad spent a long Christmas night working the Maddox case before they were called out a third time on December 26th at 8 a.m. This time, they would be investigating a shooting at the short-stop Mini Mart. The site was a chilling scene, particularly behind the counter where Abraham was shot. She had been taken to St. Elizabeth Medical Center clinging to life with two bullet wounds, one through her mouth and the other into the top of her head. She would fight for five days before succumbing to her injuries. She was a 38-year-old mother of three. The self-proclaimed downtown posse fled the store with a mere $44. However, detectives had two witnesses who were able to give them valuable information of the suspects in the getaway car. Pettis had been shot in the stomach during the incident but was still conscious and survived. Thompson had evaded injury by pretending he was hit and slumping over the counter. Of course, the getaway car was a vehicle of Joseph Wilkerson's, whom They still had no clue was dead at this point, as no one had even reported him missing. The perpetrators also unknowingly left behind a clue for investigators, as the gunman used the same caliber blazer ammunition that killed Danita Golett. While this was intriguing, there was no way for investigators to be certain it was a match until the shells had undergone ballistics testing. As more witnesses were interviewed, the perpetrator's descriptions started to overlap for investigators, and it became apparent that they would be receiving another call soon. Back at their new hideout, Keene and Smith were becoming paranoid as too many people knew too much about their activities, and any one of them could snitch on them to the police. If you remember, the downtown posse was just a group of people who had a rebellious nature and did not get along with their parents. It was a group of nine people. Keen, Laura, Smith, and Heather were all the perpetrators and co-conspirators in committing these murders. The rest of the gang obviously knew of their nefarious dealings as they would often come back and brag about what they had done. But they didn't really participate in it. At that, they probably didn't really know that they were murdering the people either. So, I'm just speculating that they knew something was up because they bragged. But maybe they didn't believe them, you know? You never know. So, in an attempt to throw police off their trail, Keen and Smith would move Joseph's stolen vehicle to the next street over from their hideout and switch the license plates between Joseph's vehicles and their other stolen vehicle. But still, Smith did not feel like it was enough. As he became more scared, someone was going to snitch. He especially felt that sixteen year old Wendy Cotrill and eighteen year old Marvin Washington would definitely go to the police and say that he was the one who shot Jeffrey Wright. Without much more thought into the matter, the gang, including Laura, Keene, Smith, Heather, and now Nick Woodson, loaded up into their stolen vehicle and headed to Bill's apartment. Once there, They invited Wendy and Marvin to go for a drive and drink some beer and wine. Keen drove the vehicle with Woodson sitting behind him. Wendy sat on Marvin's lap in the middle of the back seat, with Laura on the other side next to the door. Wendy was pregnant at the time with Marvin's child. The car bursting with all of these people then drove to a liquor drive-thru, passing the drinks around the vehicle. Soon, King decided he wanted to visit his brother's grave and drove the gang over to the cemetery. Nick Woodson would then ask to be taken home, as if he knew what would happen next. So King dropped him off. The remaining members drove around until Keene spotted an open gate at a city gravel storage area. He stopped the car and got out. Then Smith followed. Keene told Wendy to get out of the car, and Smith told Marvin the same. They both then pulled their guns out on the couple. Wendy pleaded with them that, they didn't tell the police anything. That they didn't do it. They weren't gonna tell on them nothing. But her pleas were just of no use. By that afternoon, the homicide office was being flooded with calls from individuals leaving tips for investigators. Detective Grossnickel was working through paperwork for the Sarah Abraham case. When Dispatch directed a call from a man named Nick Woodson. While speaking to Nick, Grossnickle could tell he knew what he was talking about. That he was someone who knew something about all of the things going on in the town. Grossnickle could tell Nick Woodson was in trouble and Nick knew he was in trouble. Nick told Nickel that he was very scared of some people who were trying to get him to help rob and kill people. Grossnickel asked him if he was able to come into the station and talk, to which Nick declined, so Grossnickel took the information Nick could provide over the phone. Nick was able to confirm much of what investigators already knew, but also provided more information that they didn't know. He provided Chris Nickel with Demarcus Smith's full name and Heather Matthews' name. However, he could only describe Keen and Laura to him. Nick also told him that the gang had been driving several different vehicles in the past few days, describing a red Buick, a blue Grand Am, and a black Dodge Shadow. He also told the investigator where they could find another body off of Salem Avenue as the gang had taken him to the house to party while the man lay dead. Upon hearing this, Grossnickel told him that, for his own safety, officers could bring him downtown for further questioning. Nick told him, well, he better get there quick. So Grossnickel dispatched some detectives who were finishing up interviews in the Abraham case Unfortunately, by the time they reached Nick's home, they learned he had already left for the downtown police station. However, a neighbor of Nick's told them that just before leaving, Nick told her he was afraid of some killers who were coming to pick him up, most likely in a Black Dodge shadow. This information was spread to patrol units with the warning to use caution as the suspects in the vehicle were armed and dangerous. At roughly 2.45pm, Sergeant John Huber was driving along Cornell Drive when something out of the ordinary just happened to catch his eye. He happened to notice a black Dodge shadow that he had never seen in the neighborhood before. As this struck him as odd, and because there was this be on the lookout placed on the vehicle, he called the license number in to find that it belonged to a blue 1989 Pontiac Grand Am registered to Joseph Wilkerson. As Huber was quick to realize the plates had been switched, he turned down an alley where he planned to turn around and keep an eye on the vehicle but just so happened to find another startling discovery. The blue 1989 Grand Am with no license plate on the rear end. Checking the license plate on the front of the Grand Am, he recognized the plate number as the one that belonged to the shadow that had been reported missing earlier that day. Huber radioed this information to dispatchers and called for backup. He was still in the alley when he saw the Dodge Shadow take off. Quickly getting back into his patrol car, he radioed that the vehicle was on the move, but was surprised to see that the vehicle only traveled two blocks. While stopped, Smith jumped out of the car and started running. But Huber kept his eyes on the vehicle, which still contained three suspects. By the time the shadow began moving again, backup units were closing in on them fast. Huber turned on his lights while the detectives who were still in the area to pick up Nick blocked the path of the stolen vehicle. The shadow stopped. Huber then jumped from his cruiser with his gun drawn and remained behind his door. An unmarked police van then pulled up beside Huber with three plainclothes officers with riot shotguns emerging from its side door. Three more backup units pulled up behind Huber. Every officer had their gun pointed at the shadow, all shouting, get out of the car. The suspects came out slowly and without incident. Authorities found Keen's 25 caliber handgun underneath the driver's seat. Keen was also wearing one of Wendy Cottrell's gold necklaces, Danita Golette's red and white plaid jacket, and in his pocket was a commemorative pocket knife that matched knives Joseph Wilkerson would give to his male relatives. Authorities had Marvelous Keen, Laura Taylor, and Heather Matthews. But what happened to Demarcus Smith? A woman told detectives where he ran to, Sandra Pinson's home. Detective Pearson and Detective Ninktbell went to the address asking if they could come in, to which Sandra said that was fine. They asked if anyone else was home, to which she said no, but they heard footsteps coming downstairs. A young black male appeared, to which the authorities asked who he was. The man claimed that he was Sandra Pinson's son, Dion, and he lived there. Sandra did not say anything. So obviously, authorities asked her permission to check the rest of the house, to which she said, yeah. While upstairs, authorities found Sandra's boyfriend, Earl Strickland, who told them that the man who just went downstairs was not Dion, but was the person they were looking for. They arrested the young man, whom they later confirmed was actually Smith, Before bringing him to headquarters, the detectives had Smith get his clothes out of the bedroom closet. Amongst the items that were found in there, they found Danita's Vila shoes. After their arrest, Sandra told detectives that the gang had been living in her home for the past few days but she and her boyfriend were too afraid to even come downstairs because they all had guns. She furthered that her son Dion had been arrested on traffic violations with a stolen car given to him by Keen, the Red Buick. Showing the detective the traffic tickets, they called in the registration on the stolen car to find that it belonged to Joseph Wilkerson. With Marvelous Keen, Laura Taylor, Heather Matthews, and Demarcus Smith now in custody, all of them were interrogated in separate rooms. Keen, Smith, and Heather practically volunteered almost all of the information they had. Everything except what happened to Wendy and Marvin. However, investigators did not know about the recent murders yet. So they were probably more along the lines asking of the murders that happened that they knew about at that point in time. Surprising authorities was Keene's cooperative and respectful demeanor when speaking to them. He would answer with yes sir and no sir. Detective Wade Lawson stated it was hard to believe with his demeanor that he was responsible for these murders. Heather Matthews never pulled the trigger, but would often drive the getaway car. She gave the most complete statement to avoid being handed the death sentence. But 16-year-old Laura Taylor was the most defiant and tight-lipped of the four, even demanding a lawyer. Detective Burke stated none of them showed any remorse, but... At least the other three, you got the impression that they realized the consequences of their actions, but Laura couldn't have cared less, or at least it seemed to me. Detective Wade Lawson even called Laura a cold-hearted girl. After all, if you remember, everything was pretty much Laura's idea that everyone just simply went along with. It was her idea to approach Joseph Wilkerson with a sexual favor and then rob him in his home. After Keene shot Wilkerson in the chest, Laura shot him a second time in the head using the derringer that was found in the home. It was Laura's idea to rob and kill her ex-boyfriend Richmond Maddox using the same stolen derringer. It was Laura's idea to rob the shortstop mini-mart. While she did not pull the trigger at the store, it was still her idea to rob the place, even scoping it out and interacting with the occupants. But the most chilling detail that really shows how heartless she is is when she watches her boyfriend put a gun into Wendy's mouth. Someone who was supposed to be her friend and fired, but because she was 16, she could not receive the death sentence. Local civil rights activists viewed Laura as an unwilling accomplice, probably due to her age and the fact that she was a young girl. Everyone also always described her as seemingly childlike and innocent. They would press for her release as she was transferred to the youth detention center. It was here that Laura would receive counseling from Reverend William Head and authorities would finally receive the final piece of the murdering spree. On December 27th, Reverend Head contacted the homicide detectives one last time about two more bodies located at the city gravel storage area. Investigators would discover the bodies of Wendy Catrill and Marvin, Washington, just beyond a large pile of dirt and gravel. Wendy had been shot in the mouth with an exit wound through her ear. She was lying on her back, her shoes were missing, and her coat was open with the inside pockets pulled out. Three 25 caliber blazer casings were found around her head. Eight feet away from her body lay Marvin Washington, also on his back. He had been shot several times in his side and the head, with seven caliber casings surrounding his body. Wendy's mother hadn't seen her 16-year-old daughter in 3 weeks and identified her from a photograph. It appears from these instances, because we know who shot who, it seems like Demarcus Smith was kind of the more trigger-happy person. Marvelous Keene, Laura Taylor, Heather Matthews, and Demarcus Smith were convicted of murder Due to their compliance, witnesses and the evidence investigators collected, the trial and sentencing went rather smoothly and all received life sentences with one receiving the death sentence. Laura Taylor was convicted of one count of aggravated burglary, three counts of aggravated robbery, two counts of aggravated murder, one count of burglary, one count of murder, and two counts of attempted aggravated murder. She is currently in the Ohio Reformatory for Women in Marysville. In 2021, Laura Taylor had the opportunity for parole due to new laws that affected the sentences for crimes committed by minors. However, the attempt appears to have been denied as she remains incarcerated. Her initial eligible parole date was in 2098, but due to this change in the law, her next parole eligibility date is now in 2026. Heather Matthews was convicted of one count of aggravated burglary, three counts of aggravated robbery, one count of aggravated murder, one count of burglary, one count of conspiracy aggravated murder, two counts of aggravated murder, and one count of receiving stolen property. She is currently in the Ohio Reformatory for Women in Marysville and will be eligible for parole in 2132. DeMarcus Smith was convicted of five counts of aggravated robbery, four counts of aggravated murder, one count of felony assault, one count of burglary, two counts of aggravated murder, and two counts of kidnapping. In 2013, he received an additional count of possession of a deadly weapon while under detention. He is currently in the North Central Correctional Institute and will be eligible for parole in 21-23. Marvelous Keene, leader of the downtown posse, was convicted of one count of aggravated burglary, three counts of aggravated robbery, one count of burglary, two counts of attempted aggravated murder, one count of kidnapping, and five counts of aggravated murder. He received the death penalty and was executed by lethal injection on July 21st, 2009. At his execution, he was given a chance for his last word. He said, no, I have no words. He never fought against the death penalty to have it appealed, simply accepting his fate. What makes this crime so memorable is the fact that the Christmas killers in Dayton had no motive. Except for the thrill. Even when it appeared that their own friends might turn them in, they killed them without giving it a second thought. Detective Burke stated, This was a game. This was for fun. They had taken these people's lives just the way we swat a fly. They wanted the violence and everything else seemed secondary. Detective Grossnickel felt that all four members deserved the death penalty, but he also knows that no amount of punishment can bring the victims back or satisfy their loved ones. He stated, I realize how hard it is for these people to go on. For myself, I find it odd that only one person received the death sentence i understand that heather matthews kind of took a plea deal and i understand that laura and demarcus were underage at the time because they were 16 and 17. so i guess they really can't they really couldn't receive the death penalty. I don't know. It just doesn't seem- it doesn't seem very resolved, I guess you could say, because yeah, Heather Matthews probably did the least amount, considering she drove the getaway car. DeMarcus killed without thinking about it. Laura was practically the mastermind behind the whole thing. And you couldn't say that DeMarcus and Marvelous were the only gunmans, because Laura took it upon herself to kill people too, so I kinda see Laura as more of a threat. (laughs) So again, it feels more unresolved. Tell me your thoughts in the comments. The Oxygen Network aired a documentary about the tragic story of the Dayton Christmas killings entitled Six Slays of Christmas, which is available on the streaming service Peacock for those interested. It contains interviews with law enforcement officials who worked the case, including Danita Golett's sister, Rhonda Golette. A 2018 book titled The Christmas Killings was written by officials involved in the case also. This includes former police officer Steve Grismer, Detective Dennis Murphy, and Dr. Judith Moncer. The grisly case of four youths who destroyed many lives during the christmas season in the span of three days has left a dark mark on the city of dayton for many years a group of young people who murdered because they were bored and seeking a thrill the most dangerous people you could ever encounter so what did you think of today's case do you think justice was served What are your thoughts on Laura Taylor, the wolf in sheep's clothing, possibly receiving parole in the next few years? Leave your thoughts in the comments. Thank you for listening and your support. Stay safe and I will see you for the next episode. Bye!